With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Um, we are coming to you online in our virtual programs, which we have started at the time that the COVID crisis uh, shut down the Commonwealth Club to its live audiences here in San Francisco. So we welcome you back. Those of you who've seen other ones of our programs, we have done uh, several hundred programs like this now uh, in the last seven months. And we are always looking for uh, interesting ideas uh, to discuss with authors. We've got a great one for you today. Uh, Thomas Ricks, the author of uh, First Principles, which uh, discusses how the first four presidents of the United States all relied on their classical educations one way or the other. Washington has got a very interesting angle on that. Um, but uh, that's what we're going to discuss today. And uh, first of all, welcome, uh, Tom, to the Commonwealth Club on our online program. And uh, I thought we'd start with, uh, with something uh, deep into the book, which was uh, how the founders all insulted each other uh, using their classical education. Um, you know, they, they, they used famous Roman names, which I'll let you kind of go into a little bit. Uh, you're a Catiline, you're a Cato, you're a Cicero, uh, usually to insult each other, not, not just to, to, to uh, praise each other um, if you were the wrong type. And it had to do with the fact that so many people, at least at that level of society, were educated in the same way. Uh, I thought that sort of like today, uh, you know, people think that it was kind of our, our politics has been, you know, we just finished a, a, an election season and then people were calling each other a clown and Sleepy Joe, you know, and, and, and uh, worse, you know, but I think the founders had nothing over on these guys. I mean, they, they really did a much, much stronger job of calling each other. It's a little bit more, they're, they're a little bit more like if someone would have said, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, is not quite as charming as Lord Voldemort, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so, so why don't you tell about this little fun game that, that the uh, founders, which we all revere so much, uh, played with each other? Well, it comes out of their focus on ancient history, Greek history to an extent, but really Roman history. And within Roman history, the decline of the Roman Republic. Uh, to them, that was the central political narrative of human history, how the Roman Republic fell apart. And they attribute it to two major factors. Well, first, it winds up with ultimately a general taking over. So that was a great fear of theirs. Somebody being a Julius Caesar, that was a real insult. Um, and in fact, there's some historical record of at one point Alexander Hamilton saying to Thomas Jefferson, uh, Julius Caesar was a great man. And historians have concluded that if he did say that, it was just teasing Jefferson <laughs> to get a rise out of him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the central figures for them, uh, Cicero and, and Cato on the, on the good guy side, the central bad figure for them is Catiline, who runs a conspiracy. And he embodies everything they worry about, they fear. They see the Roman Republic declining for two major reasons, corruption and faction. Corruption is living too high off the hog, um, having loose morals, spending mo money wildly. Faction is what we would call partisanship. And they, especially John Adams, really fear faction. They see partisanship, political parties, uh, which we see as kind of normal, although extreme sometimes, they see that as close to treasonous. Yeah, and so to call somebody a Catiline, um, they all called each other Catalines at various times. I think the winner was Aaron Burr, though. Yeah. Everybody agreed. Uh, whatever party were from, Jefferson, uh, Hamilton, Adams, they all agreed that Aaron Burr was an amoral Catiline, um, really the Donald Trump of his day. Yeah, I was going to say that, that he, he lived up to their expectations, too. Uh, interestingly, I wonder whether it was being called all that that name so often that did it or whether he was just born to the, 
to the man, so to say. I think uh, with Burr is an interesting figure. I think they all recognize that Burr uh, was in it for himself from the get-go, didn't subscribe to any of these ideals. The others at least pretended, you know, if they didn't really buy it, at least pretended to. And Burr made it clear uh, he was not a man of ideology. Uh, the historian Gordon Wood once commented, you can look through everything Burr ever wrote and there's not a single political idea. He simply didn't care. The question was, what's in it for Aaron Burr? What's in it for Aaron Burr? So, so uh, the musical Hamilton got that part right. Very much so. I mean, I like Hamilton. Academic historians quibble with it. Sure, I've got quibbles. I think it gets Madison wrong, um, Madison's point of view. Um, and it gets so much right, and it makes it so interesting. And sure, it doesn't really um, convey what I think is the fundamental fact about Alexander Hamilton, which was that he was batshit crazy. Uh, he had great energy in writing. He was a real strategic thinker. But boy, does he go uh, kind of crazy when he realizes the country's not going in the direction he wants. He actually wanted a kind of monarchy. Uh, he went actually to the Constitu Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and proposed a presidency for life and senators for life. And everybody kind of shrugged, and he left, which is typical Hamilton. You know, but Hamilton always was into conspiracy and messing around. At the end of the revolution, he tries to manipulate the army into kind of a semi-mutiny to force Congress to raise more revenue. And Washington is very tolerant of this, but writes him a letter saying the army is a dangerous thing to trifle. Yeah, it's very interesting that, that, you know, the way that you present the founders. And I think it's a great comparison between the first four presidents because uh, they all have a very different angle on, on democracy. But none of them are really uh, fond of democracy in it, the way we look at it. The, the I don't think they'd ever experienced it. I think the closest any of them had come to democracy probably was John Adams in the New England town meeting. And it's interesting that of the four, I think Adams in some ways has the greatest fear of democracy. Adams really does not want the people to run this country. When he remarks after the revolution to his cousin Samuel Adams, that the people have part of the sovereignty. Samuel Adams writes back and says, hey, Bob, take a look at the constitution. It says, we the people, they have all of the sovereignty. Uh, and Adams, I think one reason he was a disaster as, as president was because he never bought into that. Adams thought somehow the elites, people like him, uh, well-educated, not necessarily wealthy, but well-educated, reading Greek and Latin, that they not only did run the country, but they should run the country and would run the country. And his presidency was a four-year study in him being shocked. Uh, he hated it when people criticized him. He didn't just hate it. He considered it a form of treason. It was faction. And to right. him, faction represented the downfall of the Roman Republic. So he starts throwing newspaper editors in jail. Yeah, the Alien and Sedition Act. Um, people, some people obviously know about it. I haven't read the history, but not too many people realize that that early in our, in our democracy um, was a much stronger stand against people making other comments. I mean, it, it could compare to what the Soviet Union did in terms of uh, shutting down uh, opposition in the newspapers and any commentary. So well, they're I, still I, figuring I out what the country is, yeah. and and they're arguing about. It. I mean, remember, to them, the Constitution was not a sacred text. It was something they more or less had made up in a few hot summer days in Philadelphia. Yeah, <laughs> they have a momentary discussion. Uh, hey, um, how many people should be in the presidency? And they kind of argue, no, shouldn't be three guys because you know when they had these three three triumvirs and um. Ancient Rome, that didn't work real well. So let's leave the presidency, make that one. Okay, well, who impeaches the president? And they have an argument about it. Why not the Supreme Court? No, because he's appointed them all. Let's make it the legislative branch. Uh, and it's one reason I think we should be less wary of going back and tinkering with the Constitution. I think it's early on, they, they made a lot of fixes to the Constitution, a lot of changes, a lot of amendments. And they said it will be, it should be amended. But we've kind of gotten away from that. Uh, as big states get bigger and the little states get littler, uh, it's an issue we need to revisit. I think we should revisit the Supreme Court. Um, I don't think it should have life terms. I think that's too much Hamilton stuff. Uh, I think terms of 18 years would be good. Uh, so we wouldn't have this gerontocracy of aging 
Supreme Court justices appointed by you know, presidents 40 years ago. Right. That would, that would make the future uh, look a little bit uh, more open-minded and have put an end to the talk about, you know, stacking the court again, as everybody does when they're... Uh, before we go into each of the presidents in more detail, let's also talk about the ideas. Uh, you, a lot of people don't realize how fundamental the ideas a civilization believes in are in influencing their decisions, including, you know, how common slavery was and how it was accepted and for what reasons and so on. But there are some other fundamental uh, streams of thought that influenced the late 18th century when, when America was founded um, that, as you show in your book, uh, as the experiment went along, uh, it, they, they started to fall away. So one of those is the Enlightenment. One of them is, is uh, the Scottish Enlightenment, which is a slightly different thing, and then maybe Montesquieu. So why don't you tell us a little bit about those streams of thought that, that all of those founders uh, were educated in. Um, and therefore influence what they were thinking. It's a good description, streams of thought, but I would actually say it's one stream. Uh, the reason is when you paddle upstream, as I did, through the Scottish Enlightenment to Montesquieu and then on to the Roman Republic, you find it's one stream. Roman history is the common vocabulary of the Enlightenment. Montesquieu is probably the leading political theorist, philosopher coming out of the Enlightenment. Montesquieu basically invents the modern liberal state based on toleration, justice, freedom, balancing the individual rights with the stability of the state, uh, anti-slavery. And Montesquieu is the single most influential writer on the Scottish Enlightenment. What's he writing about? Well, one whole book on the decline of the Roman Republic, and then his masterpiece, The Spirit of Laws, is at least one third of it about Rome and what's to be learned from Rome. The Scottish Enlightenment then flows right into America, uh, much more than the English Enlightenment. Uh, and I think this has been a mistake American historians make, beginning with Carl Degler. Uh, if you simply go back and look at the words, uh, where they come from, Montesquieu is referred to by the founding generation twice as much as Locke is. But the Scottish Enlightenment, partly because of the tobacco trade, flows into America. Tobacco is flowing into the port of Glasgow, and Scottish tutors are coming back out. They're young, they're poor, they're well-educated, and they're looking for work, and there's jobs in America for young Scottish tutors. You know? And so they go especially to Chesapeake Bay, because that's where the tobacco is coming from. They ride over these tobacco ships, and they teach generations of Virginia. So, for example, uh, James Madison shows up at Princeton, a well-educated young man, speaks in Greek and Latin, and also, he thought, speaking French. But when he tried to speak French to other people at Princeton, it turned out he spoke French with a Scottish accent. Yeah. His great humiliation. And he kind of never stopped speaking French at that point, but he had some sort of Scottish brogue that he picked up from Donald Robertson, his teacher. <laughs> well... I think, yeah, that's a, a very interesting, you know, part of uh, what you uh, mentioned in your book is that, you know, the, the tobacco trade caused this kind of stream between uh, Scotland and Virginia, and, and with it came the Tudor, uh, who were, were educated in Scotland, in Edinburgh and, and uh, Glasgow. Uh, so one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize about the, the original colonies and, and the original time in America was that it was split pretty evenly between the five southern states and the eight northern uh, colonies, I should say, and the eight northern colonies um, from a population point of view. But Virginia was the biggest. So Virginia was, it wasn't New York that was the biggest state. Virginia had a lot more population. So I think that influenced uh, decisions too. And it shows in how many presidents came from Virginia and how the southern question and the whole issue about slavery um, being part of America uh, didn't really have a chance to be be eliminated at that point. So I want to talk a little bit about how uh, they dealt with this issue because that's a it's a pretty crucial thing and it's uh, uh, something that we've been dealing with ever since. We still haven't uh, gotten anywhere near being over it. So why don't, why don't we talk about the start of that whole problem? It's absolutely crucial the issue of slavery. Uh, slavery is not a blot on American history. It is a it is woven into the fabric of American history. And as you say, 
here we are 275 years later, still pulling the yarn out, the threads out. Uh, slavery uh, is especially interesting because it represents a misuse of ancient history, especially Roman history, by the founding generation. American slavery was race-based, and it said that these people were different beings, inferior beings, and had absolutely no rights that the white person needed to respect. And uh, the Supreme Court with, uh, makes that law with the Dred Scott decision. Ancient slavery was very different, and this was rather neglected. Uh, ancient slavery was seen by the ancients as a matter of misfortune. Anybody could wind up a slave simply by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Slaves had no color. They went all the way from Swedish to African. The word actually comes from the Slavs, uh, who frequently were made slaves by the Romans. Roman slaves also had some rights. They had the right to petition the emperor for redress if they felt they were treated cruelly. Even more strikingly, they, uh, their offspring could hold office, something that was not really true in the United States until probably the 1950s. In the South, from 1901 until, I think, about 1970, there were no black members of Congress. There were precious few um, mayors and other local officials. Uh, there were no senators or governors. So it's only recently that we've emerged from that. But the well, there, there, was, there was a period of time right after the Civil War uh, when there was a, a time so that the, the intent was to free it. And then it was all reversed in about 15 years, uh, going back to the 1870s. You get this exactly right. Uh, yeah. There were, uh, from 1865 until about 1876, uh, there were a number of uh, black police chiefs. There were integration, for example, in the New Orleans schools. There were uh, black congressmen and senators. There was a black lieutenant governor uh, and black, legisl black legislators all over the place. That was put down violently. Uh, by the South and kind of a refighting of the Civil War. By that point, the North was tired and basically said, we're going to ignore it and we're going to listen to the lie of the New South. And so you get violent Jim Crow in, a, in close to a century of a, a really terrorist suppression of Black Americans. But even now, as you say, we're still working with this consequences of slavery. But first, you have Black people as slaves, then you have black people allowed a meager second class citizenship. And only in the last 60 years are we seeing black Americans um, privileged with first class citizenship. But there are still people who don't buy that. And some of the people who don't buy it wear police uniforms and treat black people as second class citizens. And there's still, uh, and then there's the reaction with mass incarceration. It it's interesting because there was mass incarceration of the black after the Civil War as well, uh, in order to have them work, you know, at, uh, almost as, essentially as slaves again. So we keep we keep fundamentally falling down and going back to, to the problems of the past. It's interesting to me because you, I you think if the founders came back now, they would be stunned at what a mess they made of slavery. But, yeah, uh, they write it into the Constitution partly because Georgia and South Carolina say during the Constitutional Convention, if there is a whiff of abolition, we're walking. And this was not just a problem of keeping two states in. This was a problem if you, there were just little states at the end of the South, that if you let them out, if they became independent states, uh, then you might allow France or England, the great powers of, of Europe, a toehold on the continent to come back in, because those states would be too weak to defend themselves, so they'd have to have foreign allies. And suddenly, you're back in the mess of European great powers fighting with each other. And so they compromise. In some ways, the Constitution is a peace treaty between states. They compromise. They put slavery in, not realizing, I think, what a fuse of dynamite they've lit. And in less than a century later, you get a terrible civil war, and you get problems still today. So I think they really would be shocked to see um, what a mess they made of it. On the other hand, I think they'd um, be pleasantly surprised to see simply that the Constitution has lasted this long. One of the problems they faced was Montesquieu said that republics don't last long, and small republics have a better chance of lasting long than big republics. 
And so Madison, as he's working on the Constitution, is trying to figure out how do I get around those two problems. Let's uh, let's now go back to the the the, the I was going to say the boys, but the the, <laughs> the, the young men uh, of of Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison, our first four presidents, um, and the characters of how they learn, because that's what the first part of your book is about. It's very interesting what their educations were. And, and you, you, you mentioned how Washington did not get the Ivy League education that the other uh, young men got, but that he learned basically from being a young officer in the French and Indian War. And, and I, I found that very interesting because it almost said he wasn't going to be a winning uh, officer. So why don't you tell a little bit about Washington and his experience in the French and Indian War? And that's how many years before the, the revolution? 10, 15 years, something like that. 20 years, yeah. Yeah. 1750. Um, Washington, the saying about Washington among American historians is the more you know about him, the more you admire him. I think the same, the same is true of Madison. Definitely not true of Adams and Jefferson. Washington has to make his way in the world uh, to the deaths of various family members. He's kind of abandoned to the world, except he's given and probably eventually inherits the property of Mount Vernon. Now, he is educated as a surveyor. He's a good surveyor. And he starts buying land in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, even as a teenager, making with his own wages. He very much wants to rise in his society. And I think like a lot of outsiders or semi-outsiders, he's very good at perceiving how the society works. And while he's not classically educated, he doesn't read Greek or Latin or, or French or Spanish. He never travels abroad except once to the West Indies. Uh, he sees that the way to rise is through honor. He wants to be like Cato, the uh, Roman statesman known for his judgment, prudence, frugality, and reserve. And these are all characteristics that come to be associated with Washington. Though they're not natural to him. Uh, he has a volcanic temper throughout his life. He works hard at containing it. He, he totally loses his shit twice on the battlefield during the revolution. But I think, yeah, his great education was the French and Indian War, in which he saw, uh, at Braddock's defeat, this very large British military expedition, the single largest expedition mounted on the North American continent up to that point. The British lose to a combined force of French and Indians. Uh, the British have been very contemptuous of the French and Indians, not recognizing how good they were at gathering intelligence and planning their battle. Washington sees this horrendous battle, uh, and I think has about 20 years to, to, to mull it. He's a re reflective man, though not well-educated, and he thinks about the lessons. And I think those lessons help him a lot when he goes into the revolution. He was sent off uh, to discuss um, issues with the French, and he traveled through Native American territory pretty much alone or with one or two other people, right? Um, yep. As if that was uh, a safe thing to do. And the other interesting thing was, you know, I assume that the French must have spoken English with him because he didn't speak any, any French, right? So when he did not speak any him, French. Or um, did he take a translator with him? Uh, there are always people around uh, who spoke English and French. Um, they were handy. Uh, the, the French, remember, were operating in a vast territory, much bigger than the English colonies. Uh, the French were had, you know, were up and down the Mississippi Valley, the Ohio Valley. They were out to Detroit. Uh, for the battle they had for Braddock's defeat, uh, they invited Indian tribes from as far away as Iowa. And it was kind of like a, the Woodstock of its time. Hey, we're going to have a huge battle. It's going to be a lot of fun. Come on down. And... It's a sign of how good the French diplomacy was with Native American tribes that a Native American tribe could be contacted hundreds of miles away and still get there in time for the big fight. And the fight, quite coherently and cohesively, they had identified where the officers were, how to get the officers, where the um, cannon were, because cannon were like machine guns of the day, um, flat trajectory, direct fire weapons used to take out large clumps of soldiers. And the Indians come in at Braddock's feet, and bam, they take down the officers, they get the people around the cannons, and then at their leisure, destroy the forts. Uh, and the, it really is a remarkable battle. Uh, several bullets pass through Washington's clothing, but none hit him. And he rides all night through the forest, 
to take the word back to a rear fortress. We need to bring up medicine, food, and weapons for the, for the survivors. Well, just one perspective on, on that uh, French and Indian portion uh, from 1750. So that's in the background uh, when the uh, revolution takes place and everything goes on, and then you've got the elections. And then you have Aaron Burr, and this is just an aside, we won't spend much time on it. But after he's vice president and after he's killed Hamilton, he goes off and he's back in that territory and he's got a scheme to get that whole territory under his control as if he's the dictator of that and fight back at America. So I thought that story really gave a different... It's not at all clear quite what he was up to, but he winds up having been vice president, having nearly been president in 1800, he winds up indicted for treason and tried for treason. A few years later. It's kind of amazing. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, that's a, that's an amazing story. The thing that's interesting about it is uh, most people uh, think about the original colonies and that we're just generally going to keep moving, you know, out uh, west more and more and more and more. And it's all ours just waiting for us. But actually it was, you know, in this case, Burr thought he could create another nation right there. And it, it kind of gives an impetus to manifest destiny that you don't often think about, which is... <laughs> Yeah, it's contested territory. There's yeah. another conspiracy by a U.S. Senator Blunt in Tennessee, who also conspires. Uh, people are goofing around out there on the frontier. They're thinking maybe I could have my own little empire out here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's to Jefferson's credit that Jefferson focuses on that and says we need to nail this down. Uh, the Mississippi cannot be in the hands of a foreign power because we can't have people across the Appalachian subject to a foreign power shipping all their stuff down the Mississippi. Right. Okay, so let's go back to, to uh, the four presidents. So Adams, you tell very, very interesting stories about Adams. But let's talk about him as a young man before he gets too grouchy. <laughs> so he went... <laughs> Adams goes off to Harvard. Uh, he's not from a wealthy background. He chopped wood all his life, never holds a slave. Uh, he wants to be the Cicero of his um, time. An interesting ambition, Cicero being the great Roman orator, um, a bit of a philosopher, and seen at the time in the 18th century as a great literary figure. Everybody who could read Latin read Cicero. And Adams says, I'm going to be the Cicero of Massachusetts, the Cicero of America. And surprisingly, kind of achieves that goal. Yet, um, he's such a prickly figure. I think he's not the figure we've seen portrayed in recent years. First in that HBO, or first in David McCullough's book, uh, and then in the HBO series. He's not that cuddly, big old teddy bear, Paul Giamatti. Uh, the HBO series kind of really played the alien as addition acts, throwing critics into jail, played that very soft. I think partly <laughs> because the, the McCullough book was really a, a biography of marriage, this wonderful marriage of Abigail Adams, who I think is John Adams' equal in intellect and strength of will, probably a calmer, more coherent strategist. Uh, but Adams great has two great contributions. First, he's the first of the four to get the ball of revolution rolling. So early on, he's a revolutionary. And then his other great achievement is something that's relevant right now. He runs for re-election and loses. He is America's first one-term president. He's quite bitter about it. Nonetheless, he turns over power peacefully to the opposition in 1800 to Thomas Jefferson. Or actually, the power is turned over in 1801. He doesn't like it. He's unhappy about it. And being this honest, brilliant, cranky guy, uh, he declines to show up at Jefferson's inaugural. Yeah, I was, was going to say, Trump can do an Adams here, right? Yeah, he takes the 4 a.m. coach to Baltimore instead of going to the inaugural. Nonetheless, his, to his credit, he turns over power peacefully to the opposition, the first person to do so in American history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because Washington was in his party, basically. Yeah, Washington and, and, and Adams Washington. are both Federalists. But Washington does defer. Yeah. Washington does defer. At the, at, when Adams is inaugurated, uh, they're leaving the, the room, and Adams sort of bows to Washington to let him go first. And Washington says, no, you're the president. You go. Yeah. So uh, Adams goes to Harvard. And, and you have an interesting thing about, about the colonial college. You know, Harvard was there since the 1620s, I think. And, and uh, Yale came in 100 years later or something like that. 
And Yale was like the Connecticut College for all the people from Connecticut. Harvard was for all of the Massachusetts. William and Mary, a very interesting history of William and Mary uh, that you present. But that was the Virginia College before uh, you know Jefferson started the University of Virginia. Um, but then there was the College of New Jersey, which eventually becomes Princeton. And you you mentioned that 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 school in the 1760s uh, was a hotbed of revolution, the way Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley, was in the 1960s, uh, 200 years later. That's not how people think about Princeton. <laughs> no, and it's certainly not the way we think about Princeton now. Yeah, um, you know, Princeton strikes me as the most conservative of the Ivies now, the most culturally conservative and historically because of its location. It's where a lot of Southerners went if they were going to go to an Ivy school went. Uh, but it was very different in the 1760s. Its president was a man named Weatherspoon, a Scot, uh, again, the Scottish Enlightenment. He was the first foreigner brought in to, be, uh, to run an American college. He was a very progressive thinker about education, about children and the raising of them, uh, and a political radical. He's the only college president who gets involved in the Declaration uh, and the only uh, clergyman. So he's a, he's a Presbyterian minister. He's also steeped in Montesquieu and ancient Roman history, and he gives lectures, and we have basically transcripts of them, and I quote them, in which he educates young Madison on, among other things, checks and balances. Of how do you how do you deal with self-interest in a society? And he talked to him about republics. They they called it moral philosophy, but it's really political science, the duties of a person in a society, how a government should be run, all the stuff that Madison later pours into the Constitution. Now, Princeton is a hoot, though. Princeton has drawn people from all over the eastern seaboard, from every colony, um, and even from the West Indies. Uh, Princeton was consciously formed as a national college at a time, as, as you say correctly, the other colleges were really colleges of their colonies. It has a nationalist orientation, which is, I think, what part of what attracted Madison, a Virginian, not to go to William and Mary, but instead to go to the College of New Jersey, Princeton, uh, where he meets all these other people from all over the continent and maybe starts thinking about different interests and how you balance these different interests. It's interesting also that Princeton has a much dis disproportionate representation at the writing of the Constitution. I think there were nine Princeton graduates. Who were writers of the Constitution. Because they came from different states, because they, coming from those different states, they all went to Princeton, they all went back to the states and, and became leaders and then came back to the Constitutional Convention. And so, Weatherspoon and it, the college, as, as one person uh, wrote about it, smoked with sedition. Uh, if you were <laughs> interested in revolution, if you were interested in politics, that's where you went at the time. And they got a good education. Uh, Princeton cautiously said, we're not just training clergymen, we're training people to be public men. Uh, what's also very interesting about, you know, the whole culture of the times and the ideas was this Roman idea of virtue, uh, not not being that you followed the rules of something, but that you were strong or brave. Um, and one of the things you, you comment on in the book is how that concept, uh, by the middle of the 19th century, nobody talked about virtue anymore, except for maybe female chastity, That uh, as if that's what virtue was. So. Uh, this idea of virtue, which uh, some people are trying to resurrect, uh, again, a, a strength, uh, as strength. It was interesting that Madison, in his attempts to create this constitution, everything you mentioned, that he's trying to not deal with virtuous people, but to take vice and how can you make it as if appear to be virtuous by, by the methods that you use. So he, he at least discussed these ideas or had these ideas discussed with him. When he was in college, um, and since he Madison was the youngest, right of the four, so yes, so he was he was still a young man when the Constitutional Convention uh, started and brought to believe, early thirties, yeah, yeah. So so uh, let's let's go to the Revolutionary War for a second. Um, you you said Adams started the revolutionary thinking of all of these uh, gentlemen that they really didn't have the idea of, of fighting the British even. Uh, for example, Washington wanted to go up in the officer rank of the British Army, uh, the British Colonial Army. So in, in approaching it, uh, I thought you had a very interesting argument that as far as Boston was concerned and Boston culture, the revolutionary ideas started 15 years before the first shots were fired. 
So why don't you tell a little bit about that because that's not also so common. It's almost like the, the Stamp Act put the whole thing on the people and they weren't ready for that. They just revolted, but that's not that's not how it worked. It really it does go back to the uh, 1750s. Uh, and coming partly out of the religion of the time with these very independent ministers uh, talking about uh, the duty of citizens, of people, and your your job as a person in the society is to hold your ruler to account that a king is only a king if the people support him. The people can revoke their support. And in fact, it is your duty if the king is against God. It is your duty under God to withdraw your support and to fight him. Uh, Virginia is coming to this in its own ways. It was always an argument sort of, well, Patrick Henry is down there. Well, he comes along a little later. But there are the these independent uh, streams that eventually come together. There is an interesting argument going on among academic historians these days how much of the revolution was caused by fear that the British would abolish slavery. That's clearly a concern in the South. Uh, and you see it, actually, the British governor, the colonial governor of Virginia, when there's this first whiff of revolution, uh, Lord Dunham is his name, he says, let's uh, raise an army of slaves and promise them freedom if they fight for us. And this really scares the Virginia. Uh, the British don't handle it very well, never really gets off the ground. Uh, but they did have a lot of Black Americans fighting with them. I was just reading a book the other day that uh, when the British withdrew from Charleston, South Carolina, some, I think 50,000 people left, among them 15,000 former slaves who had become free blacks. Generally, uh, blacks were treated much better under British occupation than they were under the American. Uh, the uh, British military ruler of, of New York City uh, stated explicitly, any black who makes it to within our lines is considered free. And that yeah. really scared the Americans. Um. You don't uh, go at this in your book at all, but uh, but one question that's often asked about this: the British eventually uh, uh, outlawed slavery by the 1830s. So but the Scots did it first. The Scots did it first. I have a feeling yeah. that you have some Scottish background. I'm actually not. The funny thing <laughs> oh, is, oh, you're not. Oh, okay, uh, great. <laughs> my people. I come from Puritan stock um, of uh -huh. eastern eastern um, England, uh, East Anglia, which is very much where the Puritans come out of and uh -huh. into Cambridge University, much more Puritan than Oxford was. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like I'm betraying my Puritan stock. I see. But okay, but the Scots really did have an influence. But what's interesting is there are some people who argue if we had not had the American Revolution, then the slavery issue, and we'd stayed a British colony, the slavery issue would have been solved decades earlier and and maybe our civilization would have been different. You what do, you, what do you think about that idea? Uh, who knows? Well, my guess is that as ab the strength of abolitionism grew in England, the American South would have split away. Um, and we could have wound up with two countries here, a kind of fascistic apartheid state in the South, resembling South Africa, that might well have lasted into the 20th century with slavery. Remember that had the colonies remained part of Great Britain, at some point in the 19th century, the American members of parliament, presuming there's proportional representation, would have dominated British politics. You probably would have had an American prime minister, and the Americans would dominate the party system. So I think England almost would have had to get rid of the American simply to maintain <laughs> its, inte its integrity. Uh, another interesting aside that people don't uh, know about, but the South in, in there as the, in the 1830s, uh, 40s, and so on, when they were realizing that they were losing ground to the North uh, on, and therefore in population, therefore in slavery, that there was a, an attempt to try to make Cuba and Haiti and, and, and other uh, parts, the Caribbean, uh, states in the United States in order to replenish the, the power of the South versus the North. Yes, um, to, expand, to expand the slave, the slave states. Uh, mm -hmm. And really, the Civil War grows out of the frustration of not having slave states in the West. Uh, it made no sense to talk about slavery in, say, New Mexico or Arizona. Uh, 
there was a lot of slavery in eastern Texas, but the issue really starts bubbling along. What's the future of slavery to be? And the Southerners are quite violent. There's a good book by Joanne Freeman about how violent they were inside the U.S. Congress, uh, beating people, challenging people to duels, shooting them. Um, they really said, we will not allow you to discuss slavery inside the U.S. Congress. And if you do, we may kill you. Yeah. And, uh, and how, many, how many, how many violent, yeah, how many violent acts were there in Congress during this time? You, you, you mentioned that there's. I think a couple of hundred of yeah. serious blood instances of, of bloodshed and many more threats to do so. Yeah. So they, they weren't kidding that they were going to be violent about it. Um, one thing that we, we, we elided over that I want to go back to, and there's a question right on this from George Steffner. Uh, what about Jefferson's study of the classics? Did the Federalists advocate the kind of elite rule in old Rome and somewhat in Greece? But but I think you, we, we didn't talk about Jefferson being an Epicurean. So. Uh, why, don't, why don't we go back to that before we go back to, to uh, the Constitution? Good question. Jefferson's a, lot, a, a fascinating figure. It's almost as if whatever you say about the founders, you have to add a clause except for Jefferson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, for example, every all the founders are really into Rome. Roman history, Roman literature, Roman, um, Roman speeches, Roman drama. The most popular ancient dramatist, in the colonial world was Terence. He's a comic Roman playwright. Nobody reads him that. By contrast, they didn't read much of the uh, the great Greek dramatists. And again, uh, Jefferson's the exception. He reads Euripides. They don't really pay a lot of attention to Greek history and philosophy. They see the Greeks as kind of out there, not stable, sober people like the Romans. Uh, they especially see Athens as flighty, too democratic like a ship without a captain, right? But one historian. When they did look to Rome, they looked more to Sparta than to Athens. Uh, Samuel Adams, John Adams' cousin, wrote that he wanted Boston to be a modern Sparta. Again, Jefferson's the exception here. Jefferson is quite fond of Athens. Uh, and so Jefferson takes away a whole different worldview. He proclaims himself to be an Epicurean. That is the pursuit of happiness, the avoidance of pain, but not really a materialistic Epicureanism, not drug, sex, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but uh, a philosophical striving for tranquility, wisdom, and prudent justice. And you see all these words pop up in the Declaration, prudence, justice, happiness, twice in the first couple of paragraphs. That is Jefferson the Epicurean. Jefferson also is less rational. He's more Greek. The Greeks are kind of seen as running around yelling a lot. The Romans don't. They're calm and sober like Cato. Uh, and I think this is the beginning of Jefferson has one foot in the Romantic era, um, privileging the heart above the head, very unlike uh, the Enlightenment rationalist. But Jefferson is thus enabled to have a huge gap between his wonderful words in the Declaration and his actions. He talks a great game when he's in Paris about how bad slavery is. When he goes back to Virginia, he sounds very much like the other plantation owners. He doesn't start talking about how bad slavery is. So he talks about liberty all his life, but he never really acts on that. You make another interesting observation about Jefferson, and that is, you know, he's so well known for the Declaration of Independence and how uh, stirring the words are. But you said he wasn't really a very good writer most of the time. I find that... Jefferson a frustrating writer. Yeah. He's an elusive figure. The, uh, the more you pursue Jefferson, the more he runs away. He doesn't want entanglements. I think this is one reason he spent much of his life in a half-marriage with Sally Hemings while pursuing married white women. Uh, because you could have romances with white women, but there was no danger of having to marry them. Uh, he... The forerunner of quite a few men that way. <laughs> yeah, but really makes an art of it, I think. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's hard to point to much other good writing by him. There are some good phrases, but they don't really ring true sometimes. Uh, there's no really other essays. The, the essay that made him famous was the instructions he wrote for the Virginia delegation to the um, Continental Congress discussing 
what to do, which ultimately becomes the declaration. You go back and read that essay, and it's close to unreadable these days. It caused a lot of fuss at the time, and it made Jefferson kind of a celebrity at the time because the first person to put down in writing, the king is the problem. Until then, everybody's saying, oh, the parliament's the problem. The king uh, is, is fundamentally good. And Jefferson says, no, we have to confront the king. And the declaration, uh, a big chunk of it, is an indictment of King George. So let's um, go to the war. One of the things that you wrote about in the war that was very interesting was the strategy used to win the war. Um, not, not suited to George Washington's personality, but he gets persuaded to use the technique and, it, and it's effective. So why don't you, because a lot of people just say, well, it just seemed like the war meandered around a lot, but you're saying it was part of a strategy. So why don't you uh, explain that strategy? And it's also an ancient Roman idea, right? I think it's my favorite part of the book in some ways because it gave me a chance to clean up some of the messes made by academic historians uh, who I think don't understand war. Uh, I spent 20 years studying war and I think coming to understand it to the degree that it is understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I have some understanding of it, I should say. <laughs> um, Washington goes into the war a very conventional military thinker. He's seen the British defeated, as we talked about 20 years earlier. But he goes in basically operating like his British counterpart. I'm going to launch a fancy offensive operation against entrenched British soldiers in Boston. Not only am I going to attack them, I'm going to attack them by land and by sea, a complex amphibious and land operation. Well, first of all, we're really lucky he never got a chance to do that. He simply did not have the troops to do it. That would be a complex, difficult operation for seasoned troops. He did not have seasoned troops. He had raw militiamen and a few people with some experience. He does try a similar thing in New York a year later, and he gets his butt kicked out of Long Island. He gets his butt kicked across Manhattan, and he gets chased across New Jersey. So offensive operations aren't working for him. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll fall back, and I'll fight a war of post. I'll go into a defensive posture to make them attack me in fortresses. Well, the British do that. They terrify the American soldiers inside the forts and the Americans surrender. Okay, that didn't work either. So reluctantly, Washington adopts what is called a Fabian strategy, named for the great Roman general Fabius, who defeated Hannibal using that strategy. And essentially, it says, don't seek battle Avoid battle as much as possible. Wear your enemy out. Maneuver around. Make him chase you. Play to your own strengths and don't challenge him. So, for example, Fabius fighting Hannibal, knowing that Hannibal had good cavalry, pulled his men up into the hills where cavalry is not as useful. He made Hannibal chase him constantly and had people nibble at Hannibal's edges. So, that's what Washington starts doing in New Jersey. He does give battle occasionally when he has to, when he has to prove I'm still here. Uh, so at Trenton and then in Princeton, he sees an opportunity to get an isolated British garrison and goes after it. But battles don't happen very often, yet armies have to eat every day, and that becomes the key to his strategy. Nibble away at them. When, this, when the British are out foraging, looking for cows to take back and slaughter. Uh, he has militiamen out skirmishing, impeding them, shooting at them. So the British lose one soldier here, two there, 10 the next day. Uh, the British maybe start getting deserting. Ultimately, the British give up on getting food in New Jersey. They have it shipped in from New York and Long Island to the troops in New Jersey. But in the six months after the British victory in New York City, the British force dwindles to less than half. It goes from about, I think, 32,000 to about 14,000 through death, combat death, through illness, serious illness, serious woundings, desertion, and prisoners. And it just whittles away the force. And the British come to realize we're not going to be able to catch this guy and get a big battle out of him. How are we going to win this? They don't know. They never have a theory of victory, whereas Washington 
can say, well, Washington can say, as long as I have an army, they can't win. And eventually, if they can't win, I will win. And that happens. Eventually, the British political world gets sick of this war. Uh, the French intervene and make the war much more difficult for the British. And the French fleet being offshore, French money coming in and helping, French soldiers helping at Yorktown, eventually tips the balance. And the British say, this simply is not worth it. We're out of here. I thought it was very interesting, the little detail. I mean, you mentioned the, the strategy of the, the British soldiers have to go out and find food. So uh, one of the strategies that they, the American soldiers used was they would put some cows out in a field uh, in order to attract the, the British soldiers to come and try to steal them for food, and then they would attack. Uh, you know, we, we, I, we don't really think about the American Revolutionary War in that way. <laughs> I think it's really been poorly taught and poorly understood. Uh, there are books out there. It isn't like nobody's discovered this. It's just that the best books on uh, how the war was fought uh, tend, tend to be ignored. Uh, historians focus too much on battles. Battles do not necessarily win wars. Sometimes they're very important, like Saratoga was. But uh, generally, in a day-to-day, -day, uh, you can fight a whole war and barely win any. The battles can still win, as Washington did, as indeed also uh, the North Vietnamese did in the, in the war in Vietnam. Right. I was thinking the same thing. So um, we, go, we had the Articles of Confederation after the war, after we won. Um, and you have a slightly revisionist idea about that. You think that they weren't so bad, at least as a transition, that it, it might have been better that we had something a little bit weak like that prior to the time that we actually put in place the Constitution. So why don't you explain that idea a little bit? Sure. The Articles of Confederation governed the country from, um, actually, from the beginning of the Revolution until the uh, Constitution is, is ratified. It's, it's, it's just a one-body Congress that's both the executive and the legislative. Uh, it, it really has no power. It's constantly asking the states for money that states are constantly failing to provide it. You get outbreaks like Shays' Rebellion in Western Massachusetts. Uh, the federal government tries to raise troops, doesn't have any money to raise troops. And finally, Massachusetts puts it down by raising money from private sources for a private militia to go put down Shays' Rebellion. So the central government is unable to ensure domestic tranquility, which is one reason Madison and his fellows put that phrase into the Constitution. Uh, the Articles of Confederation government, though, is worth thinking about because I think it's kind of we've lived under it for the last year. We've had, it, in the virus epidemic, we've had a very weak central government, almost inactive, not really doing anything. The governors, meanwhile, scrambling around trying to deal with it by themselves. You have a national problem being dealt with on a state basis, which is one of the problems of the Articles of Confederation. Right. Uh, Trump may be our last Articles of Confederation leader, a kind of historical <laughs> hiccup. So um, the Constitutional Convention, these, uh, are all four of the presidents there, Madison, uh, no, Jefferson? Um, oh, Jefferson, Jefferson is off in Paris. He's in Paris, right. He's having fun in Paris, man. Uh, <laughs> and Ben Franklin's see. already back from Paris, right? At the end, uh, when Washington's forming his new government, um, they bring Jefferson back to be Secretary of State. This is actually um, done very well in the uh, opera Hamilton. Yeah. Jefferson comes back in and says, what I miss? Yeah. And then says, here I am. <laughs> I'm barely off the boat, and I'm Secretary of State. And it, it's true. He comes back. He's horrified by what he sees. The, um, the federal government, uh, the capital, is based in New York City, and he finds everybody there kind of Federalist and Monarchist. And he says, what happened to the revolution? But the Constitutional Convention itself uh, is really, in many ways, a one-man show put on by James Madison. Uh, he, he, he bangs the drum for a convention for several years. He sits in his father's house in Montpelier, Virginia, and for years reads ancient Greek and Roman history. He has Jefferson and Paris sending him literally trunk loads of books at this point. Uh, Madison is trying to figure out how do these ancient republics work? What were their problems? What were the confederations like? How do they work? And what can I borrow from them? He especially is concerned by Montesquieu's uh, ruling that only small republics work. Well, then what are we going to do with this place? It's going to be a big nation. And 
but they're not sustainable. How do I make it sustainable? If Madison came back today, I think he'd be so pleased. He said, this thing has worked for more than 250 years. It's held together. You know, I did all right. Sure, I messed up. We all messed up on slavery, but it lasted. And that was the first question. How can it be sustainable? So he gets to walk to Philadelphia. He's the first guy in Philadelphia. He gives a big speech called the Virginia Plan. He withdraws a little bit after that. But after the signers of the Constitution say, okay, let's send it out to the states for ratification, Madison, with Hamilton, leads the the ratification campaign, basically a political campaign. And it's not by no means certain that it's going to be approved. Um, New York never really likes it much. Massachusetts finally passes it. And Virginia says, well, if Massachusetts is going to pass it, we'll pass it too, despite Patrick Henry's intense opposition to it. So Madison gets the ratification. And then for his final great act, in the 1790s, uh, he recognizes the politics are going to have to change. Uh, In that 1790s, I think he plays the role that Washington played in the revolution. Washington recognizes, what are we going to do here? What's the strategy to go forward? Likewise, Madison in the 1790s says, we're going to have to have political parties. So I would say Washington, by leading the army and winning the revolution, gives us the country. Madison stands second only to Washington in that he figures out what this country should be, and he begins to implement. In the 1790s, he and Jefferson invent American political parties, and then by the end of that decade, they win the presidency. It's interesting that Madison had, you know, all these guys had, had a long-term perspective. You you quote Adams as saying uh, that that this could cause hundreds and thousands of millions of Americans to live in freedom and happiness in the future. Thousands of millions is a billion. So, you know, we haven't even gotten to that number yet. But that's really quite a perspective from somebody in the 1760s uh, thinking ahead. When, when Adams was thinking clearly, he thought very well. His problem was he was so vain, he was so sensitive uh, that at times, my favorite quote on Adams is from Benjamin Franklin. He's a brilliant man. He's an honest man. But at times, he is absolutely crazy. You, you have, one of the things I like about your book is that you, you have the worst thing uh, different guys ever said. We won't go into the worst things, but they all said pretty bad things at different times. Um, even so, about Washington, they even trash Washington yeah, sometimes. Yeah, 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 very, uh, very important. And I think especially in in our culture today, because when we when we look at what we're trying to achieve, uh, anybody that doesn't live up to what we're achieving now, we think of uh, should should be like eliminated from the process. But it takes it takes everybody taking steps forward uh, to to get to where we are. And then, I mean, that's assuming that we're ahead. <laughs> Uh, which, Washington of course, every group always assumes this. that they're making progress. Washington forgives great sins against him personally, people who yeah. are disloyal to him, people who are awful to him, because Washington keeps his eyes on the prize. Yeah. I can't get rid of these people. I don't have a lot of good generals or good officers. He takes the most grievous personal insults and eats them, a very proud man, Yeah, because it's good for the country. Washington really uh, makes some great personal sacrifices. And then, and then, of course, he's more or less unanimously made the pre- first president uh, under the uh, Constitution. And he, but he, even then, he doesn't have an easy time. I mean, it's not like everybody deferred to him while he was president. He did not have an easy time during those years. And and people uh, also, as you said, factionalism, something they thought that they had eliminated, you know, came apparent within his own cabinet. Oh, there's that moment when he is so sick of Jefferson and Hamilton squabbling. He blows it. He blows his staff. And, and he he says, by God, I'd rather be in my grave than deal with this stuff. And you can see Jefferson, just his eyes big, goes home and writes down the whole thing that Washington <laughs> said, because he's just so stunned by this outburst from Washington. They realized they really had pushed Washington too far. Well, yeah, also, uh, you know, which is also covered in Hamilton, the musical, uh, is, is that uh, Hamilton has to decide between Jefferson and Burr in the 1800 election. So why don't we talk about the 1800 election? Uh, people were saying that this current election was going to be very, very close. It didn't turn out to be that way in the end, in the Electoral College. But there was a total tie between Jefferson and Aaron Burr, 
which which uh, is is kind of one of those crossroads. Um, the guy who the guy who backed off and 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 changed, we owe a lot to, because uh, if Aaron Burr was the Catiline personality that everybody said he was, that could not have been good for us, no matter what Jefferson was like. <laughs> it also it makes the point the framers screwed this up. It was a bad design. Yeah. So Burr, because Burr ties Jefferson, and he doesn't do the right thing, which is basically he's running for vice president. Okay, boss, you be president, I'll be vice. Burr says, hey, you know, I could be president. Sure, that sounds good to me. You know, who wants to get on the party with me here? Um, it, it was a bad mistake, and they fixed it. It was one of the amendments made. It makes me think of all the amendments we should be making these days to change the right. Constitution. Something goes wrong, you got you to gotta change the rule when you realize that. I, the... think, I think the founders would be surprised that we haven't gone back, that we kind of lost the impetus to fix this and change it. <laughs> They'd say, hey, when we wrote the Constitution, Biggest state, Virginia, was 12 times bigger a population than the smallest state, Delaware. Now you've got a 50 to 1 ratio. You probably want to change that. Maybe you want to give the big states three senators, the middle states two senators, and the small states one senator. That doesn't fix it totally, but it redresses the imbalance. I think they'd, they'd say, you know, we really sat down and worked on this. It's not sacred text. It, it's a design to be worked with and changed. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes left, and uh, you know, at the end of your book, you have a, a section on the ten things we should learn from from the process. One of the things you mentioned is gerrymandering. Um, you know that this has always been a problem. After every census, every ten years, uh, the states are allowed to redistrict uh, in order to you know apportion where the congressmen are going to come from. And of course, it's been politically captured uh, and seemed to be ever more intensely uh, redrawn in the stranger and stranger ways over the decades. Um, so what do you think of the idea of uh, giving that you know, one amendment be to, after every census, have a computer, uh, given the instructions, you know, divide the state into the equal, as close to equal number of people with the shortest lines drawn possible, and then, and then you know, take things away from the political, um, things that are easy to do like that. So that that's not where all the attention goes to. So that we be closer to democracy afterwards. But people, you know, both parties seem to have shut themselves in the foot with this because they've made the primary so important that the primaries, of course, bring out more extreme uh, versions. And so the middle of the road is not being, uh, in either party, is not being promoted. I'd love to see that done. I think a related thing is I think the founders would be absolutely appalled at the role that money plays in politics. These yeah. days. That dollars are more important than votes. That corporations have such a say. I think they'd say, you've got to get rid of this nutty thing that says that corporations are people and have the rights. Uh, you've got to get corporations less involved in politics. They would see it as utterly corrupt. And they would say, this is what brought down the, the, the Roman Republic. Um, and that you are becoming too much of an oligarchy, a an, an oligarchy with democratic trimmings, perhaps, but an oligarchy ruled by the rich. Something else, I think they would be surprised at how much the Supreme Court uh, focuses on property and property rights. And they'd say, you know, that's not quite, it's not supposed to be the Supreme Court for property owners. Uh, I would love to see 18 year terms for Supreme Court justices, uh, knowing that you know, they'd come in for a long term, they'd have a lot of influence, but then they'd be gone. And a president could say, it's not just a crapshoot who gets which presidents, but I know that those terms will expire. I can begin thinking about them and dealing with them. And the uh, Congress knows that I am going to have this and we can start working on it in a more rational way that rather than, hey, someone just died, let's stuff somebody else into the bench, which is an irrational process. Well, it's great that you have those suggestions, uh, you know, at the end of your book, but it also right after having explained, you know, the four of our founders, you know, they, they didn't always get along at all. They were disagreeing with each other all the time, but the structure they created eventually worked. I mean, eventually created more of that freedom uh, than we've seen before. And, uh, you know, and you focus on the slavery issue, which is, you know, great. So I thought it was a real good overview of all that kind of stuff um, for people to, to look at. And as you said, the, the fun part of your book, you could tell, was the, about the war and how, how it was uh, taken in. But one of the things that you said, just to finish with, 
was that when they looked back to Rome and classical Greece, they were looking at, at, at the forms of government and, and they thought, as you said, the Romans were more practical. But they were trying to achieve something which was a mixture of democracy and aristocracy and monarchy. They weren't trying to get a pure democracy. They were trying to get, and, and they thought that's what made the Roman Republic prior to the, the takeover by Augustus work. Um, and, and we do have something like that. I mean, there's a president which is up and down as to how monarchical he is. You know, there's the Senate, uh, which is for the aristocracy as if from each state. Um, and then there's the representatives of the people. And um, that kind of mixture seems to be effective, even though totally flawed. I think they would say that's what made it resilient. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is the, has been the shock for Donald Trump coming in. He thought he'd been elected king. <laughs> and it's, it's it's been a surprise to him. The Supreme Court, even though it's ideologically uh, allied with him, doesn't work for him. Nancy Pelosi doesn't work for him and sees herself as part of a co-equal branch of government. The legislative branch is designed to be co-equal. And actually, I think the founders would be pleased to see that. They expected Congress to be the most energetic branch of government, not the executive. And so it's nice to see Congress occasionally get up on its hind feet and act like an independent branch. I, I think we should have a far more active, aggressive Congress than we've had. It's one reason I like seeing young people being elected to Congress these days, even if they're from the right or the left, more energy. Uh, there's a whole lot of old people who I think should need to move on from the Congress. Well, it's it's interesting because it's not designed that way. But of course, with 435 people in it instead of 50 or 60, much, much higher to keep it focused on its power. But anyway, uh, that was a great discussion. Thank you very much, Tom, for sharing your book. Um, and uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.